Leadership is the art of giving people a platform for spreading ideas that work. Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathrum. Welcome back to the DC Local Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Nathrum, and thank you so much for spending some time with us today. If it's your first time here, we share messages of leadership development, mindset, personal growth, human performance, fear, ego, how to deal with those human attributes, those things that affect us on a daily basis. We go find those messages from executive leaders, C-suite leaders, high performers. We bring you those messages so that we can all learn together. These are actual real human beings that you can connect with and make a mentor out of. So we're excited to have you on board. Please remember to subscribe wherever you happen to be listening so you don't miss any of these great messages. Come find me on LinkedIn. We're on Instagram. We're also now on YouTube. Our motto is to continue getting 1% better one day at a time. We're onboarding sponsors. We're leveling up our production quality. We're building out that YouTube page and we're excited to have you on board. Please remember to come find us, subscribe, make sure you hit the notifications. Don't miss out on any of the messages. Things are changing and we want you on board. Today's episode is with retired three-star Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford. Following a 30-plus year career in the United States Army, Bruce retired most recently as the Chief Information Officer of the United States Army. He's now a strategic leader over at Jacobs Engineering, and today we just get an intimate discussion with him about some of those major moments in his life, the impactful mentors, even from a young age, his teenage years. He never planned to go to the army. It was one mentor that changed the whole trajectory of his entire life, but not just his life, the lives of his children and his grandkids. He talks about how one mentor, one leader can change multiple generations. He also gives us some advice that we should be taking advice and looking for mentors from people that don't look like us, that don't sound like us, that don't think like us, because if we don't, we're missing a major data set, a major portion of help and advice that we could be getting in our lives that could make a major difference to us. So we get example after example of how his life was shaped by these small interactions with people that he maintains a relationship with now, and that sometimes it was the assignment that he didn't think he wanted that ended up being exactly what he needed to provide a life beyond what he ever could have imagined. Great episode coming up. We also talk a little bit about military transition and the three lessons that he's learned and advice that he can give to anyone thinking about it and how it affects their spouses. So like I said, great episode coming up. And before we get started, here's just a quick message from our sponsors that make this show possible. Today's episode is sponsored by PenFed. They've got great rates for everyone. For more than 85 years, PenFed Credit Union has offered great rates on loans, checking, and savings, serving our military and local communities. PenFed is open to everyone. Helping their members save is how they grow. Go to PenFed.org to see how you can save more with their best-in-class rates, products, and services. PenFed. They've got great rates for everyone. This episode is sponsored by Leashes of Valor. One leash saves two lives. Leashes of Valor is working hard to bring service dogs and post-9-11 veterans together in order to enrich both lives. They're a nonprofit founded by veterans right here in Northern Virginia. Check out their website, leashesofvalor.org. There you'll find warrior stories, opportunities to donate. You can shop their merchandise, which all goes to supporting their cause. We're excited to have their support and to support them in everything that they do. Check out leashesofvalor.org. Yeah, well, Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford, thank you so much for being here on the DC Local Leaders Podcast. Phil, hey, really appreciate the opportunity to have you know, say a few words and uh, spend a little bit of time with you. Thank you for the invitation and the offer. Yeah, I appreciate it. We're here. We're actually in your home office, uh-huh. and yeah. we get to look at all your bells and whistles, all your toys. I love <laughs> all of these coins that were, you know, people can't see right now on the camera and definitely if they're only listening yeah yeah this uh actually i was able to save a few things you know my wife you know when we moved out here we lived on fort mcnair and had a great time living there right you know until 2020 when i retired in october but we moved out here that was one of the first uh, edicts is okay where are you going to put all your stuff you know you figure 34 years you collect a lot of things from a lot of people and they all mean something special because a lot of them came from soldiers you know, people whose lives you touched or they touch your life, life or, or both over the years. So, so uh, it, it's uh, good to go back uh, and, uh, you know, and take a look at a lot of these because it serves as a reminder of 
why you served and those that you served with. Now, when you left, you left as the Army CIO. How long total were you in the United States Army? 34 years. Yeah. Uh, Right at 34 years. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. By the time I got out, it was, uh, it was really uh, 34 years and a couple of months. Yeah. And that, I mean, that couldn't have been an easy decision to make, especially after that long. No, you, you know, when it's time. I mean, the, the, one of the questions I had an opportunity to uh, do an out call with the secretary of the army at the time. And one of the questions he asked me, he said, so Bruce, 34 years, well, wow, it's a long time. And he'd been a soldier uh, at the time. And he said, so what are you most proud of? And, uh, and, and, and I thought about it for a second. And I said, it's the people is uh, you look behind you and you're leaving behind you one heck of a legacy in terms of the quality of the people that have worked with you over the years. And you had a hand in getting them through the ranks to be in key positions uh, in the Army. So it's not just the generals that I had uh, had an opportunity to have some influence and work with as teammates in many cases. But it's the young soldier, you know, who you knew is maybe a private. And now they're, they're a first sergeant or they're a sergeant major helping run the army. So it's really about the people. And uh, to your question, you, you know when it's time, um, you know, to, to move on to the next chapter. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I, you know, I have the, the pleasure of speaking with so many military folks from different branches of uh-huh. the military. And many of them have recently trans- transitioned. Um, and many of them are still in, and it's just, there seems to be something consistent about, it's the relationship that they build yeah. with the people around them mm-hmm. that they're most grateful for. Yeah. Um, not just when they leave, but while they're there, that right. sense of a peer group of shared suffering. I, I do a lot of this kind of in my own life, the PT, and that's just something, you yeah. know, um, but I, I purposely sought that out. Um, maybe it was because of the example that I had from people that were in the military, but something happens to us when we spend that much time around each other and we can go through meaningful experiences together. We build a bond that's unlike, unlike anything you can find in, you know, a, a group fitness class or yeah, yeah. school even for that matter, you know? Yeah. There's something to be said for the, for the, the idea you put forward and, and it really is about the bond, but, but I think there's something that kind of underpins the bond. And I think it's uh, being a part of something bigger than yourself. And, and raising your right hand uh, and, and uttering those 72 words of the oath of office, whether you're you know, an officer, an enlisted soldier, or to be quite honest with you, one of the quiet professions of the civilian uh, government you know, employees, they all, a lot of people don't know, they take a very similar oath to the one that you take as a commissioned officer and a similar oath to the one that, um, that soldiers take. So, so it really is about the bond, but I think the thing that underpins the bond is this idea of service. And this idea of being a part of whether it's the 1.4 million in the army, but then when you combine it and look at all of the services, you're probably talking, you know, over, you know, really over 3 million, somewhere in that range. Uh, It's that idea of service and, 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 you know, that's connected and underpinning that bond. So you grew up in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 What was that like? What was it? What, I mean... That was yeah thirty. That was more than thirty. Well, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was a long time. I don't want to. I don't want to date you. Yeah, yeah. I um, it it, it was uh, it, it was fascinating. Uh, I think a lot of who I am, uh, what I stand for, uh, the type of person I am. Obviously, we're all products of our environment. Mm-hmm. Um, grew up in the deep south, uh, in the in the sixties, and uh, I distinctly remember. Uh, you know, being raised by obviously my grandparents, I was really shaped by my grandfather. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, part of the story is, so my mom had me, she was 16 years old and my mom's the only child. So in a lot of cases, my grandparents, uh, were raising kind of, kind of both of us. And I was an only child for, for, for the first seven years of my life. But I remember taking away from my grandfather, though, is a always treating people with dignity and respect. And I got that from my mom, you know, my grandparents. But the other piece was there is no substitute for hard work. Uh, My grandparents, neither one could really read or write. My grandmother a little bit, um, some. And, you know, times were different back then. You know, people, they they didn't go to school. You went to school long enough until you were able to go and work. And then you went out and got a job. And so my grandfather was a carpenter. 
And so to the idea of hard work, ever since I can remember, like back to second grade, uh, for sure, I had a job every summer working with him. Even in second grade? Even in second grade. What I went to work doing? with him. Well, he was a carpenter and I picked up things and went and got things. Yeah, his big thing to the idea of hard work and being rewarded for your hard work, one of the things that he insisted on was that I got paid like all the other grown men. Mm. And so I kind of stood in the pay line. And uh, I'm sure he'd worked us out with the foreman, but he wanted, for a hard day's work, he wanted me to get that sensation of being rewarded, you know, uh, monetarily in this particular yeah. case for, for a hard day's work. And so, so th there, there was that. And then uh, a part of growing up, the other part that's fascinating, I mean, I went to a historically black college, and this is where I graduated from, and we can talk about that a little bit and how I ended up getting into, into college. Um, but in first grade, I was the only African-American in my first grade class. And so uh, what's fascinating about that, and one of the reasons I said it was fascinating is, you know, there are a lot of, you know, discussions about, you know, those times and, uh, and, and it's warranted. But I don't remember uh, being treated any different as the only African-American kid uh, in my first grade class. Yeah. And, it, and it kind of shaped my, my, my thinking, you know, grow, growing up. And uh, so, uh, yeah, it was a fascinating time uh, back then in the South and, and, uh, and, and growing up there. But uh, what do you think, you know, looking back on it now, like what, what do you think that was doing for your perception? What was your grandfather teaching you or what, what carried with you about that concept of being rewarded for the hard work you did? What it, in that mm -hmm. case, it was monetarily. Uh-huh. But was there something else that got programmed in there from that young age? Yeah, work ethic. You know, he used to always tell me, don't let anybody outwork you. Mm. And uh, he lived until I was a colonel in the Army. He lived long enough to see me become a colonel. And, and, uh, and 2007 is when he, when he passed away, at age 84. But well, the, to your question, it was about work ethic. It yeah. wasn't just about um, the fact that you were paid for a hard day's work, but it was about work ethic. And never let anybody outwork you. And did you, and you were saying that, you know, being the only black kid in the class, mm -hmm. did you, but you didn't feel a difference between the others or? No, no, I actually, actually I didn't. Uh, and again, I, I can't tell you what I did yesterday, but some but, of the things that I remember from, from back right. then, they're, they're actually pretty, pretty vivid. But that's not like a sore memory that like I was the only one different. No, no, no. I don't... thought, I thought it was a positive memory. Yeah. Uh, because I, you know, just because of the way things were, I mean, I literally went through from, you know, elementary school to junior high to high school with a lot of, uh, a lot yeah. of these, these same kids. Yeah. And you talked about your mom and your grandparents. What about your dad? Yeah, my dad, uh, uh, my dad, uh, my mom, my dad never married. Uh, I want to say my dad was 17 uh, when I was born. Uh, he served in the Marine Corps, the Navy and the army. To, to so he was a military him. guy. Yeah, he was, he was a military guy. And, uh, again, they, they never married, but he was always there for me. Uh, especially once, you know, in kind of some of my formative years. And when I got into, when I got into college and he's literally one of the smartest people that I know. Yeah. He lives in Columbia, South Carolina now. Still. Yeah, still. Yeah. And you played sports and stuff growing up. Was he there coaching you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And... He, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. I played, played a little football growing up when I was much younger. And you and I talked about that a little earlier. And then I, I gravitated towards basketball. And yeah. uh, we, we, we actually had some pretty good teams uh, growing up at Laura Richland High School. Shout out to Laura Richland there right outside of Columbia is where the high school is. Um, but uh, got took a lot away from the discipline that it requires to be good, to be a good teammate mm -hmm. uh, and the importance of, you know, things like there's no I in team. And so a lot, a, a lot of the being a part of a team, I developed there coming up you know from junior high to high school playing playing sports yeah see i love that i i ask you know i dig into that question a lot i talk to a lot of leaders that's seems to be a common theme uh i know we were talking about the book that you wrote who knows where this might lead yeah. also but there's a common theme of and it doesn't necessarily have to be sports uh -huh. but there is some sort of discipline for some people it is music mm -hmm. and learning an instrument or multiple instruments mm -hmm. that takes a discipline and a work ethic and a repetitive action that you don't really see a lot of results initially. Cause you probably yeah. play really bad for a long time <laughs> until you start to yeah, get better. Yeah, yeah. And there's something, and sometimes it's sports and it's yeah. more often than not team sports, but it's also the swimmers and the track mm -hmm. uh, runners, the individual sports. You're part of a team, but you're mm -hmm. kind of doing this on your own. Yeah, yeah. It all falls mm -hmm. on you. Yeah. Um, there's something that 
seems to be consistent with all people in leadership that they have something like that in their youth. Um, and then on top of that, there's some that have the military experience that you have. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's uh, I, I think the whole team sport thing, whether you're an individual, I think it's you're representing is back to what I said, that bond in the military, something bigger than self. Yeah. I think being on a team or representing a team, whether you're playing an individual sport, you're wearing the colors of someone, some yeah. entity and you represent them. And, and a lot of times you find people will try harder if they don't want to let the team down or they don't want to let the school down. Uh, you could argue that there are some good life lessons to be learned from participating, regardless of whether it's sports or the band or whatever it happened to be, because you learn to be resilient. And that's one of the things that I talk to young people about all the time. It's it's uh, it, it's not whether or not you're going to fall down. It's when you fall down. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. And so there's a certain resiliency that you get by being in a competitive environment growing up that I think is, is good for all of us. Yeah. I talked to, I talked to some folks, you learn how to lose with grace. Yes. You learn how to fail with grace that we use this word fail, but what you did was you learned. You learned. Right. Yeah. That yeah. play's not going to work or I, I, you know, it's okay. Someone is going to win and it's not always going to be you. That's not a reason to quit. It's not a reason to stop. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and you said the word resilience and I love that. I, mm-hmm. you know, is that, you know, I ask a lot of people about, their 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 youth because usually there's like one or two memories that stick out as being the most significant yeah you know i and you know pick between eight and twelve what's yeah what do you remember from that time that you carry with you even to this day yeah that the, the eight and twelve was uh being around people who were different than you were and getting comfortable in an environment uh where people look and think differently than you too you do uh, as I talk, so I, you know, participating a lot, a lot of mentoring forums, uh, with young people over the year. And there's literally people that that's one of my passions, but one of the lessons I always pass on to young people is get used to being mentored by people who look and think differently than you do. And I always, uh, say, you know, pass on, you know, surround yourself. If you're ever in a leadership position, surround yourself with people who think differently than you. And there's a couple of reasons for that. But from, you know, so, so early on, it was the being around people who looked and, and thought differently. And that would kind of ebbed and flowed, you know, depending on where, where we lived. But as you, you move on to high school, uh, obviously, there, there was the discipline. You know, I literally just saw one of my eighth grade buddies uh, came to my house just a couple of days ago. Uh, he works, uh, works for, for, for a different, you know, for a corporation and he came up and uh, actually two of them, my second, my best friend from second grade math class and my, uh, you know, another gentleman who, who joined us in eighth grade and we were having some good laughs, but the, the big, uh, the big lessons learned happened, you know, kind of in the, in the teens and, and, and in high school that, that literally stay with me today. Yeah. And, uh, and so if I had to identify one, it, uh, it, it's one of those things that kind of changed my life in the trajectory um, because I remember being a senior in high school uh, yeah. and I remember, you know, so you're, you're in the March, you know, February time frame, and I earned a guidance counselor, you know, calls me in and says, uh, okay, Bruce, you know, Crawford. So she's looking at my grades and, you know, she's looking at me. She says, uh, you're not college material. And uh, I said, okay. And then she says, uh, what I think you should do is I think you should get a trade. Mm. And I said, okay, taught to respect my elders. You know, we'd never had anybody in our family graduate from college before. Uh, and so I said, okay, all right. I took that, that guidance and, uh, and I decided at that point, okay, so we were, we were having it pretty rough at that time because by then my mom had remarried and divorced. So there's now four kids and I'm the oldest by seven years. And you're, you're 17. Yeah, I'm 17. Getting ready to, so you're, um, I have just turned 18. Yeah. Cause How I had a December birthday. How old are the other kids at this point? Uh, seven years behind me and then eight years behind me and then 10 years behind me. So they're, they're very young at the time. Yeah. You know, my, my, my sister at that time was 11 years old, the closest one to me. And so what, what year was this? This was, and this would have been 1981. Right. And, and so, and the, and the environment or the community generally, People may or may not have gone to college. Yeah, they, there wasn't a lot of it. Mm-hmm. There was some, but not a, not a lot of it. I had some, you know, a couple of couple of uh, uh, folks who who were friends who did. 
But the key, the key point there was I decided to take her advice. And what I said at that time, and I remember it vividly, okay, so we're, we were on public assistance mm -hmm. uh, at the time. And my mom was working a job three to 11 supporting four kids. And we were literally eating soup and sandwiches for dinner. Uh, and that's how, that's how things were. My grandparents were much older at the, at the time, uh, but still, still alive. Uh, and so what I settled on was I'm going to go get a job, maybe try to get a trade. And perhaps maybe my sister who's seven years younger than me, if I work hard, maybe she will have an opportunity to be the first mm -hmm. in our family to go to college. What trade did you settle on? Uh, I actually, so it, so it never happened. So the rest of the story is this. So about a week later after, you know, maybe two weeks after I talked to my guidance counselor and, you know, I kind of settled, okay, well, I'm not college material because that's what she told me. Uh, my mechanical drawing teacher happened upon me, a guy by the name now Dr. Clarence Hill. Uh, and so Dr. Hill was a young man with his own family, but uh, he had been teaching me mechanical drawing since the eighth grade because I wanted to be an architect. Uh, that's one of the things I took away from my grandfather when I would go to work with them. All the work stopped when this one guy who had all these papers rolled up under his arm showed up. All the carpenters would stop. They would go and like huddle on the hood of the vehicle and they would look at stuff. And I was looking, going to end up. So one day I asked my grandfather, I said, well, what does that guy do? He said, he's an architect. That's the architect. He's got the drawings of the house that we built to. And I said, I want to do that. So fast forward, I'm in high school and over the years, you know, I tell people before the internet, there was this thing called World Book Encyclopedia and grandparents seem to always have them. So I read them and I started to study, you know, architecture and things of that nature and taught myself to draw. So here I am in high school. I've been told that I'm not college material. Two weeks later, my guidance, uh, my uh, mechanical drawing teacher, Dr. Clarence Hill happens upon me and just kind of casually asked, so Bruce, where are you going to college? And I told him the story while well, I talked to my guidance counselor and she says, I'm not college material. So I tell him the story and I remember distinctly his words were, Bruce, do you mind if I call your mom? 31 years later, uh, when I pinned on three-star general and became the chief information officer of the army right there at Fort McNair, where is where we had the ceremony. He was there for that ceremony. And so was my mom. And I remember him because I asked him, I said, so you never did tell me what you told my mom. Yeah. Now he knew I was in the army and we had kept up and he knew I'd been a one star and a two star. And he was very proud of me. Um, uh, but uh, he said, Bruce, I called your mom and I said, look, I've been watching this young man since he's been in eighth grade. I watched him play sports. I've seen how the other kids gravitate towards him. I think he's a leader. Uh, I, in that particular case, he had been in the military and gotten out, going on to college. He was a graduate at another HBCU, Jackson State University. Uh, and uh, But he had uh, gotten his master's. He was running a business, but he happened to be working on his Ph.D. at a school about 50 miles down the road uh, and teaching in the engineering department. And so he tells my mom, look, I think I can get him into college. Do you mind if he goes with me? Basketball season's over now. So, and I know he's got this evening job, he being me, washing dishes uh, in the evening. He said, but do you mind if I give him a ride down to South Carolina State with me? Because I think I can get him into college. And so he talks to me about, uh, you know, he gets me in school and he talks to me about engineering. Uh, and I said, okay, uh, he says electrical engineering that had been his field. But then he talks to me about ROTC and the selling point for ROTC, because I'd had, you know, my, my dad, you know, had been in and out of the military, but my uncle, uh, who's still alive, uh, had retired out of the military. One of my, he's really my great uncle, one of my grandfather's uh, uh, brothers. Was he in your life at that time? Did you uh, have yes, access he was. to him? Yes, he was. My uncle Fred. Yeah. And, uh, and he's still alive, living, living uh, doing well there in, in, in South Carolina. But when Dr. Hill talked to me about ROTC, the selling point, and this is here, here's where I'm going with this. He said, if you go through and complete the ROTC program, you'll have a job when you graduate and you can help your mom. And from then on, you know, I was sold. So what I'll tell you is the rest is not history. But back to your earlier point, I took away two lessons from that. Uh, lesson number one uh, was you never destroy a young person's dreams before they ever have an opportunity to realize those dreams. Uh, by telling them what they can't do. But it, but lesson number two was that one determined leader, 
uh, can make a difference in the lives of others. Because, because he took a chance on me, not only did I go to college, um, but at some point, each one of my brothers and sisters went to college. And then for all of us who have kids, each one of our kids uh, went on uh, to higher, you know, higher education. So you could argue that that one guy who, as I mentioned, was a young man with his own family at the time who could have looked the other way. All right. He not only helped me, but you could argue that he changed the trajectory of an entire generation. When you look at the chain of events that were set off when he got me into school, uh, as an example. So, again, a lot of things had to happen. Uh, to be successful in the army, to be, you know, to do well and graduate from college. But I always go back to when you talk about lessons that stick with you and things that shape your thinking, shape who you are, what you stand for, how you treat people. And, and, and my passion for people now, it goes back to that time and that chain of events that occurred in high school. Yeah. And he was, and it sounds like he just shared his own personal experience with you of what he found. Yes. From being like, yes. he was able to accomplish the things in his life mm -hmm. as a result of his time spent mm -hmm. in the military. Yes. And he was simply sharing that opportunity with you. I, it, do you remember, you know, that car ride and like how that went? Was he, oh, was he trying absolutely. to co convince you or was he just simply saying this no, is no. an option? So, so first of all, I was excited about the possibilities, you know, what's college going to be like, you're going to meet new people, engineering, Holy crap. Um, you know, uh, ROTC. Okay, we'll do this. Um, and there were three other kids from my high school, good friends who, who were also, you know, uh, uh, there. And so that made the, the transition a lot easier when you go from high school. But yeah, the car ride was fascinating because he just talked about the future. He talked yeah. about opportunity. He talked about you know, some of the reiterating some of the things, look, you're going to have to work hard. It's going to be very competitive, et cetera. But it was, um, so one of the things I always say that the greatest gift we can give to the next generation behind us is the gift of a good example. And I thought that Dr. Clarence Hill gave me and uh, the greatest gift you could give. And that was the gift of a good example of not only what can happen if you're, you know, get your education, but also back to the one determined leader mm -hmm. uh, and how you can make a difference in people's lives just by getting involved. Yeah. And did you think at that time that did you see any of the things that you've been able to accomplish, like be possible? Did you think you'd be the CIO of the United States Army at some point? Oh, or absolutely not. Any sort gonna, of technical career in the first place? Oh, or? absolutely not. I, I was going to go in the Army for three years and then I was going to get out mm -hmm. and uh, and come back, you know, maybe to South Carolina and uh, try to get a job as an engineer. Why would you stay? So, I mean, obviously, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. you know, I happen to know more about your story. So you did, you eventually went to South Carolina. I went to South Carolina State. Right. Yep. And uh, you're a Q. Hey, I'm an Omega. Yes. Probably had a great time in uh, in college. Yeah. 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 I, I actually uh, joined Omega through the graduate chapter in Germany when I was a second lieutenant. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, known so, fact, uh, it's, the, it's, it's like many of our sororities and fraternities, you know, a lot of work gets done in communities through the graduate chapters and the different programs of giving. See, and that goes back to leadership and mentorship, which I really want to, I want to dig into because that's what I love talking about. And I just get a lot of that from you anyway, but, but you know, what kept you in the United States army past those three years? Why did you stay? Well, a couple of things happened uh, that, that were good for me. So number one, I ended up uh, graduating from college and ended up marrying my college sweetheart. And we've been married for 35 years. Uh, and uh, I just got to tell you, she brought me a long ways. All right. But the other thing is, so that first assignment, whether you're in the industry or you're in the military, is very, very important because that's where you're shaping. You bring with you what you have, but that's where your thinking is shaped uh, in terms of being a professional. And I landed in an organization and there was a, uh, of 700 people. First of all, uh, went to Germany. Were, were you a ranger at this time? I was a ranger. So I graduated from college. Uh, I went to ranger school and got married. Why ranger school? Uh, well, I, I, um, so in college, uh, there were a couple of ROTC instructors, uh, a guy by the name of, uh, major general, 
Later, they were captains at the time, but a guy by the name of Major General Abraham J. Turner and another uh, gentleman by the name of Chris Jenkins. And both of them had come from the 82nd Airborne Division. And they were both infantry officers and they were both Airborne Rangers. And so at the time, South Carolina State, uh, what I didn't talk about is South Carolina State has a history of producing leaders. And so since 1951, South Carolina State University has produced more African-American generals and admirals than any other school in the country to include uh, other than the United States Military Academy. I think we're up to 22 since 1951. And so it's got a very rich history of producing uh, leaders at that particular school. Does it, how does it feel to be a part of such a, a small class, small group of people? A small group of people in that. Well, 22, you're part oh, of yeah, those 22. Yeah. So from South Carolina State, wow, it, it is uh, every young cadet. If you go down and talk to the young ROTC cadets at South Carolina State, they know how many general officers and admirals have been produced and senior leaders. I mean, we literally had an assistant secretary of defense. Uh, come out of there also. And so back to your point about why Ranger School, because that was the example that I saw. Right. You know, uh, raise the bar really, really high. And every cadet there in my class of 105 wanted to be an Airborne Ranger. All right. Because that's what we saw. We saw excellence in those two young captains every day. Um, But to your question about Europe, so it was during the Cold War. All right. And so I show up in Europe in uh, 1987, January of 19, January 7th of 1987. Uh, and uh, the wall, you know, we were literally my wife and I were literally there in Germany for a three year period when the wall came down. Mm. And so uh, not only were we there during those kind of strategic shifts, and, you know, uh, in, the, in the globe at that time in terms of world events, but the, the organization that I landed in, uh, the lead of that organization was a gentleman by the name of Lieutenant Colonel by the name of Fred Stein. And so in terms of lessons, I talked about high school and how it shaped my thinking and Dr. Hill. But being in that organization when Fred Stein was there, I learned how to be a professional. Mm. So you talk about why did I stay? I yeah. stayed because I got the bug like everyone else who ends up retiring from the military. And that's where I started to get that sense of, wow, I'm a part of something bigger than myself. Uh, And the other piece of it was, I think I can do this, you know, and oh, by the way, my wife really enjoys it, uh, the environment. Uh, And uh, I think we're going to do another three years just to see how this goes. How old are you at this point? At the time, 24, 25. So you're mid twenties. I remember being mid twenties. I don't know if I would have. Yeah. Have been able to have some of these thoughts or, or it, it sounds like, you know, you've been provided a lot from the United States military, yeah. um, not just a career, but in mindset yeah. and, and you honed in on something earlier about the importance of mentorship, the importance of leadership. And, you know, this idea of being a leader, I think that we can all, we're all leaders mm-hmm. in some, we all have an opportunity to lead. Yeah. We all have an opportunity to mentor others. And, why it's so important to just simply share our personal experience with others. This is a big part of why I'm doing the show. Yeah. This isn't a technical show. I'm not asking you about how do we do business with the army and what's the new technology and all these things. I mean, what I want to hone in on is, you know, someone who wants to replicate a career like yours or, you know, be able to be useful to other people. Mm-hmm. Right. How do they do that? Like, how, like what are some easy ways yeah, well, you do it by by being authentic and showing a genuine interest. You talked about lessons learned. I remember I mentioned those two captains, and uh, Chris Jenkins retired as a lieutenant colonel out of the Army, infantry officer. But back then, as a young captain, I was. I remember I was about to get commissioned, and I was talking to him, and he said, "Bruce, don't ever forget, you're going to get soldiers. You're probably going to have thirty or forty of them in your first assignment." And he said you got to remember that what they're looking for is genuine care and concern mm. and uh, that's for their that well-being and, and, and for the well-being of, of their families. And that's what you got in that car ride. It yeah, sounds like, like way back when well, it, it, it was, it was very authentic. It was all believable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it was all about genuine care and concern. Yeah. I mean, I shared a little bit about my personal life yeah, and yeah, how I've met yeah. people with, you know, uh, getting sober. I'll just, you know, say like, you know, and it's, it's, but you meet people with shared experiences and we are, we're just two human beings connecting with another person. Mm-hmm. 
um, and sharing our experience and being an example that no matter how far down the scale you think you've gone, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can, you can still recover, you can still come back and, and you might be in a position where you're living a life well beyond your wildest dreams, mm-hmm. well beyond anything. I, in fact, I think if I would have gotten everything I thought I wanted when I first was starting to change, I would have been selling myself short. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where, so I've learned very similar lessons that, you know, where there was the job that you wanted that you didn't get. But because you didn't get that job, you were available when this other job came open and uh, it turned out to be the best thing that could have happened to you because you you talk about military experiences. There, there, there were really two people at a very young age. So now I'm a captain. You know, I've come out of Germany, the wall has come down. I've gone to some schooling for the army for about six months. And, uh, I remember I ended up at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, home of the airborne. And, uh, I, I, there were two people there, uh, that I met that continue to mentor me to this very day. And this was 1990 since 1990. One was a young, uh, at the time, Lieutenant Colonel, uh, who was my, next battalion commander named uh, Velma Richardson and uh, African-American female, uh, probably one of the only African-American battalion commanders out of a hundred or so on Fort Bragg at the time. Um, But I learned a lot about humility. Uh, She further encouraged, you know, treating people right and dignity and respect. Very smart lady. And what was interesting about her was mentorship. She was very, very big into mentoring everyone, not just other African-American officers. There weren't that many of us, but mentoring everyone. Uh, and uh, so she went on to do pretty well for herself because she became later in life the first female uh, general officer that the Army had ever selected and the first African-American female. And to this day, the only African-American female uh, general officer that the Army had picked. But I worked for her at an early age. Uh, and learned a lot from her, and I owe a debt of gratitude to her. Um, and she went on to re- retire from Lockheed Martin as an executive, and and I talked to her almost weekly uh, to this very day. Uh, but the other person that I met there that uh, I ended up having five, I think, of his old jobs uh, was at the time a young major out of Virginia State University, and he showed up at Fort Bragg about the time we came back from Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and a guy by the name of Dennis Spy. Uh, who went on to do very well for himself, became the first four-star general in the history of the United States Army Signal Corps and the only four-star general that we had. And he retired in 2016 at Army Material Command. And so I had many mentors uh, over the years, some that looked like me, but some that did not. And uh, back to mentorship, those were two of several people uh, Brigadier General retired Brian Donahue and others that I met back then who were all very authentic. Uh, they were obviously great leaders, but I think the thing that all of them shared was a love for people and a genuine and authentic interest in people that stayed with me. Yeah, and you mentioned early on when we first started to talk that it's important to have, no one person fills all our gaps, and it's important to have a variety of different mentors that don't look like you and that yeah. don't think like you and mm-hmm. don't maybe don't even have some of the same exact experiences that you have. Why is that? Well, I was explaining this. It's a great question. I was explaining this to a young officer, and I said, listen, get used to being mentored by people who don't look like you. And the young officer says, why? And I said, so if you look at the numbers in the Army, and I don't know what they are today, but back then it was about 20% of the officer corps was was African-American, roughly. So I said, if you only want to be mentored by someone who looks like you, you're probably going to cut yourself off from 80% of the mentorship opportunities uh, that you could potentially have. And so that's where I started, you know, to formulate that thought that not only do you need to surround yourself as a leader with people who think differently than you do, but if you're a mentee, you want to allow yourself and put yourself in a position to be mentored uh, to seek mentorship opportunities from a broad range of people, because that's where you learn. 
Yeah. Now this idea of mentorship, I talk to a lot of people and I, I always stress that it doesn't have to always be some sort of rigid formal thing where we Absolutely meet every not. Tuesday and we nah, talk about, nah. and I've got my notebook and stuff. Sometimes it's just simple phone call. Like you happen to be in a weekly phone call with one of your former mentors, but how did that develop? Is it, was it casual? Was it something where? It, no, I, I think the best, the best, uh, mentor mentee, uh, outcomes are born of a relationship. All right. And uh, that's, you know, just kind of a good way to describe it. You, it's very difficult to assign a mentor um, because it, there, there has to be a connection. Yeah. Uh, and there has to be kind of a, a shared view of the outcomes. What are you trying to accomplish with this re- re- relationship? I had an opportunity to be an assignment officer and work at Human Resources Command uh, when I was a major and then a little bit as a lieutenant colonel. And that's one thing I would tell young officers who would call. Uh, and say, hey, look, you know, every now and then you get a really young one say, hey, I'd like you to be my mentor. And I always ask them why. Uh, why'd you pick me? And the lesson there was, listen, be selective in who, you know, you, you want to ask to mentor you. Because not everybody's interested in that. That's not a negative. It's just that not everybody's interested in it. And so you got to know that that it's really it really is uh, about a relationship uh, with a mentor. How do you select it? How do you know who to select and what? Well, well, well here, here's what you don't do. Um, mentors come in all shapes and sizes. And so sometimes your mentor, believe it or not, can be a peer. I've had many peers uh, where we actually had uh, a mentoring uh, relationship. And so, so how do you select them? Obviously, you, you on the one hand, you want to have someone that you have something in common with. Uh, but on the other hand, you, you want to select someone who has the attributes of, of high character, um, uh, of uh, a passion for people. And I keep coming back to the word uh, authenticity. You, you want someone who's authentic and, and is really, uh, I won't say into, uh, but really uh driven and passionate about this idea of mentoring because what ends up happening the worst thing that happens is you become a mentor for someone or you select a mentor. Uh, and uh, I, I used to tell people the mentorship calls don't come at two in the afternoon. The mentorship call, calls come after a very long day at nine or 10 at night. Yeah. Uh, and you, you can't be halfway in, you know, you got to be all in if you're going to yeah. become a mentor and the same thing with the mentee. Look, uh, if you want someone to tell you what you want to hear, you probably don't need a mentor. Uh, if you want someone who's going to listen to you and tell you what they think, not what to do, then that's kind of what you're looking for. I've got plenty of mentors that have popped my bubble. Yeah. It is such a disappointing <laughs> feeling, but it's what I asked for. Mm-hmm. I asked them for their advice. They gave it to me. It wasn't yeah. what I wanted to hear, yeah. but it was what I needed. It's what you needed to hear. Right. And, and they, they've stopped me on multiple occasions for making, I think what would have been a bad decision, but would have felt right by me because yeah. I'm only asking me and I can drink my own Kool-Aid <laughs> in a heartbeat. I'm like, I definitely yeah. need to do this and I'll find all the reasons to support it. And I'll start, you know, I'll convince myself of anything uh-huh. and just, but having that pause and that moment or just asking someone else, Hey, what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's people that have no experience with it. So they're unbiased because mm-hmm. they don't know any better than to be you know, they're not biased by experience. So they're, they're just, they'll give me a real end. That's stupid. Why would you do yeah. that? Mm-hmm. And then it's other people who's like, well, you know, have you thought about this? Because mm-hmm. it sounds like you want this to be the case mm-hmm. and you're willing to convince yourself that it is without actually verifying that it is. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You've got to, so, so on, on the leadership front, um, you've really got to create an environment. So you talked about the mentor feedback and not telling you what you want to hear. I brought that up. But you also, as a leader, you want to create an environment where people are willing and feel empowered to come and tell you mm-hmm. things that you may not want to hear. But back yeah. to your earlier point, things that you need to hear. And, it's, and that's very difficult to do the more senior you get. But, it, but I think it's a necessity. Do you feel like it might be a little bit of human ego or human pride that comes in there that, like, you know, you've reached a certain level and then someone tells you that what you're thinking isn't correct or that you're wrong about something or how do you? No, 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 a- absolutely not. I think the best leaders get beyond that at an early age. How do you, you know, get when beyond they, that? 
You get beyond that by understanding that hubris is not uh, an important uh, leadership trait to have. Yeah. You learn it as a very young officer that the non-commissioned officers, the backbone and the heartbeat of the Army, listen, they've been doing, you, you show up day one and you're the leader of 40 people and you're pecuniarily liable for $40 million, $20 million worth of equipment, depending on the type of organization you lead. But you have people in this organization that's been there 15, 20 years already. Yeah. And you outrank them, but you've got to learn to listen to them. And that's back to what Chris Jenkins told me about genuine. If you show genuine care and concern for your soldiers and their families, then they will, quote unquote, take care of you. And the take care of you means they're going to teach you. All right. What is, you know, what it's like to be a professional. Uh, and uh, but you have to create that environment where they feel empowered to come and tell you when things aren't going well by letting you fail. How do you define humility? Um, I, I don't. I don't think there's a there's an easy answer. Yeah. Uh, to the you mentioned humility that. Uh, piece, uh, I, I I think it's more about uh, self awareness. So knowing yourself, uh, I think there's an element of knowing what you're good at and what you're not uh, good at. And then there's a, an element of others first. Mm. Um, if I had to pick a pillar associated with humility, I would say always put others first uh, and invest in their growth before your own. And if you happen to be the leader of the organization, good things happen. Yeah. You know, so there's one question that I ask everybody that's been on the show and it's, um, so I call it the jumping off point. Uh -huh. So I ask everyone to tell me about a time where they felt like they were at a jumping off point, a moment in time where they can no longer continue doing what they're doing. And they may be uncertain of what to do next. And, and many people describe a time where they're going through something painful, either emotionally painful, physically painful, or both. Mm -hmm. But looking back on it, they're incredibly grateful for that time, even though it was difficult then. Mm -hmm. Because they wouldn't have either the relationships they have now in their lives, the perception of the world they have. Something about their life present day mm -hmm. would not be the same had it not been for that, even though at the time it would, it, it's up. Yeah, it, it, I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't say there was a bad picture, you know, in in, in, the, re in the realm bad. of in the realm of boy, things were going really bad. And then this happened. I, I would say it, I would describe a jumping off point was I talked about my arrival at Fort Bragg. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm an airborne ranger. I've just been to Europe. The wall has come down. There's a lot of great things that happened in Europe. And now I'm at the home of the airborne. And it's a proving ground. Uh, I then get immediately sent to combat, Desert Seal, Desert Storm. So now I'm a combat veteran, airborne ranger, you know, so I'm kind of feeling it. Yeah. You know, as a young know-it-all captain, just like all the other young know-it-all captains running around Fort Bragg at the time. And so one of the, it's almost like a profit and loss uh, position, like a P&L position if you're in business, but it's called company command. And uh, so you're going to get about 100 plus, maybe 200, maybe 150 soldiers to lead, but you need to do well in that job in order for additional opportunities to come your way. And so on Fort Bragg at the time, there was the quote unquote, I'll use my air quotes again, elite positions. And then there were the, Others, great jobs, but it wasn't the elite. And I thought that I'd earned my way and had been, you know, lined up beyond secession planning. And that was true to uh, command what was then an airborne company. And that's elite. Which was like, oh, yeah, that was the, for if you're a young captain, that's what you dream for. You know, you, you wanted one of the airborne companies. And so uh, I'm lined up. Uh, and in order to go do this job, you had to go to the United States Army, you know, jump master school and learn how to put people out of aircraft. And that's a very high fail rate school. But I'd gotten lined up for that. And uh, so good things were ready to happen, you know, for Bruce Crawford. And I remember getting a call from a couple of levels up. I said, Bruce, um, we decided that you're not going to go to the company that we had you lined up for. We got this other job for you. 
And it was, uh, and I go excited going, okay, where? And they tell me where, and I go, okay, that's not, I'm looking at the elite and then I'm looking at this other company. Again, this is, you're shaped by your environment. Okay. Where so, they- so it was on Fort Bragg, but the bottom line is it wasn't one of the elite airport yeah. un- uh, organizations. And it was the best thing that could have happened for me because the trajectory of my career changed at that very moment. So I mentioned that I'd, you know, one of my mentors was then Lieutenant Colonel Delma Richardson. Well, she was commanding in this other organization. Uh, and she had come to Fort Bragg and uh, she had heard about me and she asked for me. And so her boss said, yeah, we got him lined up over here, but yes, you can have him. And so I didn't, you know, of course, immediately I developed a bad attitude. And I thought, okay, you know, wow, you know, why am I, you start questioning, why am I not getting this job? You know, am I being pushed aside? You know, just captain things, things start running through your mind. And so for about three weeks, this goes on. And so fast forward, and I'll get to the point here. I'm talking to this young major. Uh, It's two o'clock in the morning and we're getting ready for an exercise. And the young major notices me that I don't have a good attitude because I was sulking you know, about this change that had occurred. Mm -hmm. My buddies are going to the elite airborne units and I'm having to go over and work for this, uh, you know, this commander that I don't know. And it was Belma Richardson who knew where she would go. And uh, the major asked me, he says, captain, you know, he says, uh, is everything okay? You, you all right. And I tell him the story and you know, how, you know, I was lined up for this job, sir. And, you know, I didn't get this job. And then he tells me his story. Very similar. Happened to him when he was a captain. He said, Captain, do you know that lieutenant colonel? And he asked me, do you know Vaughn Richardson? That was her name. I go, I don't know her. But, you know, then I get back on my horse of telling my story about why I didn't get this other job. He said, I tell you what, this major was in the 82nd Airborne Division at the time, where, you know, one of the places I wanted to go. And he says, I tell you what, Captain, you go down there and you do the best job you can for her. And if it doesn't work out, you come back and talk to me. Right then and there, I met two people that shaped, you know, my, my future. Because not only did I go down and work for her, but she ended up being one of the best lieutenant colonels on installation of 60,000 at the time. And as I said, she went on to make history. And the young major who could have written me off at that time is having a bad attitude because he met me when I was young and he was young ended up being my mentor. And if there were one person responsible for me being a three-star general in the United States Army, it's Dennis Fye. Not because he gave me anything, but because of the example that he set uh, and the mentorship that he provided for me uh, mm-hmm. over the years. Yeah, I love that story. So that's a, that's a jump off point. And, and, I, and, and the lesson to take away for young people is, listen, uh, there are going to be jobs that you don't get in life. All right. Whether you're you know, a civilian uh, in a company like I am now or, or you're in the military. Uh, but the expectation is that you're going to go down to that job and you're going to do your very best because you never know who's watching. All right. Yeah. And you never know where that might lead it. You know, that's if I have my tunnel vision and my goggles on. And, and I have a limited perception of what's actually going on around me. Yes. And I don't know what I don't know. You don't know what you don't know. So, you know, I could be getting way more than I had ever asked for. Mm -hmm. It just didn't look the way I thought it was going to look. Yes. And it sounds like you did, like, you know, you, you might've had ambitions as a young man in the, in the military. Mm -hmm. And you thought that elite unit was the direct path to, to seeing your ambitions come true. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you got everything you wanted. Oh, and Just, more. Yeah. See? And, 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 and more. It literally is the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd like to, so one thing that I, I really try to do the best I can, and I reach out to not just special operators, but anyone transitioning out of the military. And I talk to them about, you know, how can I help you as a civilian? I've had, you know, I have a certain, uh, look, I, I, talk to people about mindset and resilience and overcoming mm-hmm. challenges and purposely mm-hmm. doing, and I don't have to do a whole lot of that with, military folks, but sometimes, and, you know, transitioning is hard. Yeah. Uh, you're leaving a community of people that you're used to. You're leaving a, um, you know, a lifestyle that you're used to and you're still young. Mm-hmm. Many of them are in their thirties. They're about my age, but for the last almost 20 years, maybe they've lived their life a certain way. Mm-hmm. They have a certain skill set, 
that in the army they don't write resumes for and they don't fill out online job applications for and it's a hard thing to do but you managed to do it and i think it took you about 15 months to do it yeah i i you know about a year out uh you know most people if they're going to transition about a year or so out they they, they kind of know that gonna, they, they start thinking about it and uh mine was a little different because i like to say i was on a three-year scholarship you know senate confirmed positions you're on a three-year scholarship and uh and so you know about a year out my wife and i start start thinking about it we went to the transition course uh, and then began, you know, to do all the things and put things in motion. We had to move the family. You went uh, to TAPS? Is uh, that what it when it, it's like TAPS, but there's a, uh, there's a senior leader transition course. The Army actually does a good job of that, uh, that, that they run. Uh, but I went to the transition course uh, and, uh, and then started to, you know, put things in motion. So a couple of things on transition. Um, one, uh, rule number one and lesson learned number one for me on transition is that every transition is unique to the person that's transitioning. There's not another that? transition because one, there's only you, there's no other you. All right. Some people have aging parents. Some people have grandkids moving in the area. Some people have high school kids. Some, you know, there's a variety of different things, uh, a working spouse, a spouse who's at some point in their career, perhaps they can't move. And so what I tell you is that Rule number one for me is you've got to really think about the fact that there is no other transition like yours and that every transition is unique uh, to the individual who's transitioning is is the the number one lesson learned. Um, uh, Another thing that I I took away from transition now that I've been in uh, corporate America now for 15, right at 16 months, is one of the questions I often get is how different is it? And what I tell people is when I, when I think about categorically, not specifically, okay, when I think about the questions that I would get from the Secretary of the Army and the Chief of Staff of the Army when I was the CIO, categorically, when I listen to my current boss and CEO, uh, Steve Demetrio, or a President, uh, you know, Bob Pergada, uh, or my most recent past boss, Don Hickton, um, the categories of questions that they ask are all still as strategic as the categories of questions that they're asking, you know, that the chief staff in the army and the secretary. Now, specifically, they're different, but categorically, they're the same levels of questions. So my point is that in terms of lessons learned and things for people to take away is you'd be surprised the similarities uh, between uh, taking a leadership position uh, in corporate America and the leadership positions that you held, uh, in the army. How did you decide on the company that you're at now? What were some of the things you were doing to work through that process? Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, uh, it, the, the, the thing that was really exciting during the transition that you're always surprised by the number of people who reach out and want to talk to you and share not only what went right for them, but what didn't go so right for them. Other so, military folks. Uh, well, no, some some were military. Some never served in the military. You got to think about it. If you're a senior vice president or if you're an executive vice president in pick your industry, you probably dealt with a lot of senior leaders transitioning from the military. And right. so you've dealt with them and you've seen the, the good, the bad and the ugly. Uh, and so, um, you know, in terms of deciding, uh, making making that final decision, there were really three evaluation criteria after probably about 30, 45 days of talking to people. I, I sat down with a clean sheet of paper at this desk and, and I wrote down three things. Uh, uh, priority number one for me was what's the culture and character of the company? I highly recommend anybody who's transitioning and they're looking at, at that next phase in their career. Think about the culture and character of the company that you're looking for, because that was very, very important to me. Uh, the second uh, priority for me was what job do they really want me to do? Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not, but what job do they want me to do? And it's just something that I'm passionate about and I really want to do. And then, of course, the third priority was was understanding total compensation and a discussion to be heard on that, had on that. But I figured if I got priority number one wrong, it wouldn't matter what job they asked me to do. And it wasn't going to matter how much they were willing to compensate you for that job. If you got the culture and character of the company part wrong, uh, then the, the other two didn't matter. 
How do you find that out? I mean, are you journaling? Are you calling people that work there and asking them questions? Was well, there, 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 there are multiple ways to find that out. One, when you're talking to the leadership, I mean, you, 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 your, your sensitivity on your meter is pretty high uh, after spending 34 years in the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, you tend to size people and organizations up pretty quickly uh, in a positive sense. I mean, you understand relatively soon, early in the process, is there some place that I'd be a good fit? Uh, you, you, you hear that over and over, make sure you're a good fit, make sure you're a good fit. I think the good fit theory, as I have dubbed it is all about the culture and character piece, yeah. because if you got a culture match in the company, uh, and values, uh, match, then, uh, the, the good fit happens as, as a, it just says a natural, you know, progression of, of activities. Well, yeah, I mean, because it's. What I find is, you know, especially for the special ops or the people that have taken leadership roles, the companies want you for multiple reasons. Some of it is just they feel like you might be able to give them influence with earning the next contract, Mm -hmm. um, obviously. But then, you know, what I found is that, you know, I talked to a number of different companies also about their biggest challenges. Mm -hmm. And I think what they appreciate about transitioning military folks is just they've spent a career building leadership skills that they can benefit from. Mm -hmm. Um, But then on the other side of the table, you know, someone who hasn't, like I was saying earlier, had to write resumes and had to submit themselves for jobs where they can kind of clearly see what this job is. Is it a step up from what I was doing before? Mm -hmm. Like they can kind of put together a a roadmap for themselves. They find a challenge in in that because they're being offered jobs. Yeah which is a great thing, mm-hmm. right? It's yeah, good yeah, to know yeah. that you're trans- a great, It's a great thing. You have a job, but what's, what, what's like some advice that you can give even someone who's in their twenties that have spent mm-hmm. six or seven years in the military and is now transitioning. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so I, I think there's, I think there's kind of three phases to the, to the transition. And, uh, first and foremost, there's the initial euphoria of finding a job. Okay. And Oh, by the way, make sure that you acknowledge that the transition is not just you, but in a lot of cases, your family's transitioning. Mm. I mean, my wife wasn't wearing the uniform, but she spent 34 years mentoring and 18 moves in 34 years. So upfront uh, associated with that initial euphoria, which is kind of phase one of finding a job and finding the right fit acknowledging that a big part of this transition is also your family is transitioning. But after phase one, I think the second phase is really understanding and immersing yourself uh, in understanding how the company earns a profit. You know, how does this company, uh, you know, profit and what are those center of gravity type, you know, uh, efforts and initiatives and things that they are doing to make money over time. And then the third phase is really once you've gotten over the euphoria of having a job and you landed in the right place. And I really feel like in Jacobs uh, that I landed in the right place. And I'm very happy uh, with the work that they're doing um, and, and where the company's going in the trajectory that, that it's on and the people uh, that, that, are, that are a part of this company and the focus on culture and people. But after that initial euphoria of finding a job, and then being in a position and immersing yourself on how the company earns a profit, then there's contributing. And I would say phase two and phase three kind of happen simultaneously. You know, this isn't a sequential where you got to do this and then you got to do this, but those are kind of three phases that overlap. Uh, Finding a job, understanding how it is the company earns a profit, and then thinking through based on the job you were hired to do, how do you add value? Uh, and increase uh, the value added of the company based on the position you have. Yeah. Well, listen, I think I could sit here and talk to you all day, you know, and, and I'd love to do more of this sometime. And I really just want to say thank you again for joining us today. It's been great talking to you about leadership and mentorship and transitioning and just this career that you've had that may not have happened had it not been for one person kind of reaching out and sharing their experience with you. And I think that goes for anyone listening who, whether they're military or not, they don't even have to have anything to do with this industry or not. Um, And that's the message I want to share. And I really appreciate you sharing that message with us today. No, thank you very much. And again, I really, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. 
uh, you know, I've kind of got this one person theory. And if there's one person within listening shot or since it's a video podcast or I shot of this conversation who heard just one thing uh, from me today in terms of it has to do with how I grew up or any lessons that I learned along the way. If there's one person out there that heard one thing that's going to cause them to think differently, to act differently, uh, to be better or to do better, then this will well, you know, been well worth it uh, for me and sitting down and, and just, uh, just sharing a few thoughts with you. So thank you so much uh, for the opportunity. All right. Thanks again. All right. Thanks for listening to DC Local Leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC Local Leaders, on Instagram at DC Local Leaders, or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.